0: Thanks for joining us for the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. COVID and the homeless. One aspect that HPR's Ashley Mizuo has been looking into is the arrest made by Honolulu police when the stay-at-home orders first went into effect months ago. She joins us this morning to talk about the story behind the numbers. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning. So what did you find when you went out in the field?
1: Basically, um, I had gotten to go out um, into the field with Ara Reyes with Hui Aloha, a homeless advocacy group. Um, she took me out to Kakaaka Waterfront Park and then we um continued on through to um, the H1 freeway going up P. E. Koi. There's a couple of people there. One of the women I people I talked to, her name was Sonia Taglias. She was arrested during the stay-at-home orders because she and her partner Joe had been in a closed park and she also had an arrest warrant out for her. And because it was a Friday, she was in jail all weekend and she said she and Joe just pretty much lost all of their belongings. Um, Reyes told me that that's the reason why so many homeless people have outstanding arrest warrants. It's because they don't want to go to court because they don't want to lose all of their belongings.
0: You cannot leave your stuff anywhere. People came to the courthouse with their car that the court people are not going to let them bring their car inside or leave their cart out front.
2: And who wants to put all their
0: stuff from wherever they are all the way just to go to court for a super ticket that? Well, they're going to take my stuff eventually one day, but I'm going to hold on to it for as long as I can.
1: And, you know, things are supposed to be stored um, if if people are arrested, or the items are obstructing the area or the sidewalk. Um, But the storage facility is all the way out in Halava and not really accessible by bus, so all the people I spoke to said it's really difficult to go and retrieve their things, so most people just cut their losses and let it go anyway. But what makes this particularly difficult for many people is when important documents are taken, things like an ID maybe, and almost all of the people I spoke with both in Kaka'aka Waterfront Park and then also by the freeway. They all pretty much said that they haven't had an ID in years because it was taken at some point when they were arrested. It was like lost in their things. Um, and that just makes it even more difficult to, you know, enter. So
0: how much of these uh, low-level citations, how much of a burden is it on, on the homeless population? Yeah, it's a, it can become a pretty big burden. Um,
1: David Shock, who is a case manager at the service provider, Hawaii Health Harm Reduction Center, or HDRC. Um, he's part of the Law Enforcement Assistant Diversion Program um, that works to divert low level offenders, like the ones who are violating the sit and lie ordinances or sidewalk obstruction, from being arrested.
2: If nobody steps in to kind of facilitate that journey to addressing the legal concern, nothing happens. And those tickets just multiply and multiply and multiply until the bench warrants issue where they just get arrested and put into jail. And when you look at things like the jails, especially in the middle of a pandemic, is that really the answer to what we want? Do we want to be shoving people in find conditions with minimal health support.
1: And these concerns are really similar to those that the American Civil Liberties Union of Hawaii mentioned when, um, during our HBR investigation into the disparate enforcement of the stay-at-home orders. The ACLU and Chaku made it pretty clear that those who get citation after citation can quickly see their legal troubles just completely spiral out of control. Um, HCRC also mentioned that when people are arrested and then let out of jail with pretty much no belongings, it makes it really difficult for outreach workers to find people they were working with to offer housing vouchers or other resources. So generally, how do these homeless
0: deal with the citations when they get them?
1: Um, One of the people I spoke with, his name's Alvaro, Alvaro Alvarez, he lives in Kakaaka Waterfront Park. Um, He tries his best to take care of the citations, he says, but it's really difficult.
3: I do community services, again, if I have a little bit of extra cash that I can't afford, I pay $25, $100.
1: He um, used to make some money doing landscaping work, um, but the man who hired him lost a lot of accounts due to the COVID-19 pandemic, so he hasn't really been able to get those um, job gigs. Um, He says also that he could definitely use the money he puts to his citations for other expenses. He's one of the last few people living in Kakaaka Waterfront Park after the city took over the land from the state. There's been a lot more formal enforcement in the area, what the city calls compassionate disruption, and others would refer
0: to as sweeps. Okay, but didn't the city like pause the formal enforcement during the stay-at-home orders for a while?
1: Right, yeah, between March 23rd and April 20th, they had paused the formal enforcement. Informal um, enforcement enforcements basically when the city clears homeless encampments. But those formal enforcements require notification, storage guidelines, and usually comes with a lot of service outreach leading up to the enforcement. Um, but that isn't necessarily the case when HPD is just responding to community concerns. Um, so that's why you'll still see people being cited for park closure violations and sit in line during the formal enforcement pause. Um, Mayor Caldwell paused the formal enforcement and reopened public bathrooms, um, which were originally closed during the shutdown, um, but was reopened um, after a lot of advocates, service groups, and CDC guidance kind of came out saying that they should reopen them. Yeah, and that was for cleanliness, right? He's like, mm-hmm. they need to wash their hands and right. you up the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then after that, the enforcement of the laws were reinstated, um, or infor- formal enforcement was reinstated. Um, but the city and county's executive director and office of housing, Mark Alexander, he explained that enforcement only happened after the city launched additional services, um, like the post tent facility, which is a temporary triage center for the homeless in Cahee Lagoon Park
2: established post we also had 24
3: 7 transportation available so if H.P.D. encountered someone in a park at two in the morning and they wanted to get help we had a van that could take them right from wherever they were on the island right post.
2: so that was employed so once
3: all those things were in place we felt very comfortable enforcing the
2: law and protecting both homeless persons as well as the general public
1: alexander he emphasized a bunch of times that the shutdown did not affect the enforcement policy, and it was it's all dictated by the amount of services available. So once they had POST um, and the additional quarantine facility, that's how um, they decided to reinstate the formal enforcement. And then he says, in anticipation of a second wave of coronavirus triggering another shutdown, the city is continuing the POST program and keeping the homeless quarantine facility on Ka'ahi Street open. So far, he says about 80 people have used that quarantine facility. And and that there's one post site that can accommodate up to 100 people, and the city is also prepared to scale up for more sites if there is another
0: lockdown. So, just to clarify, so they kind of put the pause on the enforcement during the lockdown, but if the community, anyone in the community, complained about a certain park, they responded to check out to see what the problem was.
1: Right, yeah. HPD still has to respond to community complaints. Um, so they weren't the formal enforcement with the notification and all of the guidelines that they have to follow. It's more of a just got a complaint from H- HPD has to respond.
0: Right, so they were in the park. They weren't supposed to be there after hours, and they kind of got caught up in this whole right, thing. Right, right. Okay. And then uh, any any sense from the police, you know, when you were uh, digging through all those records, um you know, just on, on how many people were homeless?
1: Yeah, during um, when I dug through the arrest records for the original story, um, it came out that I, about one in five people that were arrested did have indications of homelessness um, in their court records. So when you look back at their court history, you'll see them cited multiple times for things like sit-in lie violation, sidewalk obstruction, a lot of contempt um criminal court contempt, which is just basically they have an arrest warrant out for them, um, those
0: kinds of things. Yeah. And then the outreach providers that you talked to, uh, so have they, I don't know, what, what was the sense that they got that people were complying You know, generally with you know the, the mask recommendations, that kind of thing, and the physical distancing?
1: Right, I mean, they're trying their best, but a lot of the people don't have access. Um, one of the people I spoke to, um, Um, Alvarez he said that sometimes he was able to get masks or PPE from outreach providers um, but that it is difficult to you know keep all of that stuff together.
0: Okay yeah so interesting kind of uh, interesting stories out there on the street as everybody tries to cope with uh, COVID-19 but thanks so much Ashley. Thank you. We have been talking with HPR's Ashley Mizuo. Check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. We now go to the BBC with the latest headlines.
4: This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Tuesday, the 21st of July. I'm Alex Ritson. EU leaders agree details of a huge economic recovery fund. Austria reintroduces face mask requirements. And a UK committee calls for legislation to stop the spread of disinformation. European Union leaders have hailed their agreement on a coronavirus recovery plan as an historic achievement. The recovery package, worth €750 billion, is made up of loans and grants. It took four days to negotiate because the worst-hit countries, Italy and Spain, wanted more in grants, and the self-proclaimed frugal four, Sweden, Denmark, Austria and the Netherlands, wanted less given away and more in loans. France's finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, said the significance of the deal couldn't be overstated. I think it's a great agreement and the birth of a new Europe. Hence, it's an historic day, because for the first time in its history, Europe is agreeing to jointly borrow debt. Interest rates are lowered, the cost of borrowing is smaller, and everyone benefits from that. That's called financial solidarity. A group of associations representing Spain's hospitality industry says one in eight of the country's bars, restaurants and hotels have closed permanently due to the coronavirus crisis. One blamed the lack of tourists in normally popular destinations and said the catering trade in cities had been hard hit with so many people working from home. Austria's Chancellor Sebastian Kurz says face coverings will be reintroduced in shops, banks and post offices from Friday because of an increase in coronavirus cases. He also said more checks would be taken at Austria's borders because of cases imported from the Balkans. The Brazilian Health Ministry says the number of deaths from coronavirus has now risen above 80,000 with 20,000 new confirmed cases. Here's our America's editor, Candace Peart.
5: Lax and poorly communicated quarantine protocols and the absence of effective contact tracing have allowed the virus to spread across Brazil. Concentrated initially in the larger cities, it's now moving out into smaller towns in the country's vast hinterland. Carried by truckers from place to place, it's spreading with ease amongst poorer people living in close quarters. In the Amazon region, health workers with inadequate protective clothing may have been spreading it to remote indigenous communities. Illegal miners and loggers in indigenous territories may also have exposed some communities.
4: Antibody tests on a random sample of residents in the Indian capital Delhi suggest that nearly one in four has been exposed to the coronavirus. More than 23% had the antibodies. Confirmed infections are less than 1% of Delhi's population of about 19 million. The government said it showed that a large number of infected people remained asymptomatic. President Trump has tweeted a rare photograph of himself with a face covering, saying many people believe it's a patriotic duty to wear a mask if they can't socially distance. The apparent change of attitude may reflect concern about the rise in US coronavirus cases, as John Sopel reports. It's three months since the White House Coronavirus Task Force recommended the wearing of masks. In the intervening period, the president has taunted Joe Biden for wearing one, ripped into a reporter for being politically correct after he insisted on keeping a face covering on when asking Mr Trump a question, and only once has the president been filmed in one. But last night, Donald Trump tweeted a photo of himself in a mask and said it was an act of patriotism to wear one if social distancing was impossible. Here in the UK, an influential parliamentary committee has called for much tougher government action against websites and social media platforms that allow the unchecked spread of dangerous claims about COVID-19. Julian Knight, who chairs the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee, explains what kind of misinformation and conspiracy theories they're worried about. They range from the bizarre, such as the 5G conspiracy theories, which led to 5G towers being attacked, right the way through to issues such as, for example, disinformation spread about how hospitals were unsafe and crowded, and that itself led to people not presenting, even with COVID symptoms or, frankly, other medical conditions. So it ranges, in many respects, from what you'd say is quite out there, nuts conspiracy theories, right the way through to things that can really do harm to society. And passengers on China-bound flights will be required to provide negative coronavirus results before they board the plane. China's Civil Aviation Administration said the tests must be completed within five days of embarkation at facilities approved by Chinese embassies in host countries. This is the Coronavirus Global Update.
6: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to reconnect with the art and museum spaces on Paohana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. through September, HonoluluMuseum.org. If you're new to classical music, it can be a little intimidating. What's the difference between a sonata and a scherzo? What is chamber music exactly? And how do you spell Dvorak? The good news is that you don't need to know anything about classical music to enjoy classical music. Head over to HPR2, your home for classical music, for a listening experience that meets you where you are. Stream on the web, our mobile app, or on your smart speaker.
0: This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Your backyard quiz is next.
7: Unihoa,
3: ulepuwa, unihao, ukawa, ua umuloka i,
0: ulana,
3: umau, ukauolave, uha
0: The Republic of Palau's Capitol building took more than 20 years to build and was designed by Honolulu Architects. It looks a lot like buildings found in DC and in state capitals throughout the mainland and uh, not very island-like though with its 40-foot dome. The exterior looks like it would be more at home in 19th century New England, but the interior makes some concessions to the climate. A central plaza and open-air breezeway connect wings that house the judicial, legislative, and executive branches of the Palawan government. Officials said they wanted a building that sent a message of power, strength, and stability from the fledging nation's government. And that's the design that a local designer gave them for today's quiz, can you name this architect? Call 941 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
6: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com.
0: It can be an uncomfortable topic to talk about, but with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's probably more important than ever to plan your healthcare decisions in financial and legal matters at the end of life. The University of Hawaii Elder Law Program at the William S. Richardson School of Law teaches students about elder law and provides legal services to seniors and their caregivers. James Pesche is the director of the program also known as You Help. He spoke with the conversations Jason Ubay about advanced care directives and something called pulse or provider orders for life sustaining treatment.
7: COVID-19 has forced many of us to think about our own uh, mortality and and what happens to us and especially if we should become isolated and uh, folks uh, need to plan ahead. If you think about it, perhaps some of the people who are shut in the nursing facilities don't have an advance directive or haven't talked to their doctors about, about these issues, or more likely, even if they have uh, talked about advance directives and have an advance directive or a pulse form, uh, they may have changed their mind uh, about uh, how they view end-of-life decisions because um, it's such a deadly virus. But um, with proper treatment, uh, most people do survive. And so many people may be rethinking what they have in their advanced directive. So we've uh, set up a, uh, a new page on our website which uh, addresses the COVID-19 uh, issues, practical and legal issues, even with the uh, spread of the virus to nursing facilities it hasn't been dramatic uh, a spread and um, but we, we still have the underlying issue of what do these folks in the facility want uh, if they're still capacitated to make decisions and if they are incapacitated what really matters to them would a a uh, short-term coma, uh, being placed in a short-term coma or on or in a respirator not be as, as difficult to them to imagine as it would just uh, last year or whenever they may have made their advance directive. I, I know several people who have called say, I'm not so certain that I want to automatically refuse um, tube feeding and resuscitation uh, because of uh, what we've heard is that many times you do need to have uh, some form of intervention. And is the old advanced directive adequate under COVID-19 circumstances? From an older person's
6: point of view, if they're in care, what kind of things should they think about in their advanced directive now? Or now that the coronavirus is out there and that we kind of know what treatment is necessary to combat it.
7: Yeah, that's, that's exactly the um, area that would be important is to have a better understanding of what treatments are available and what would you want. So on our new um, tab on our website, our COVID-19 tab, on that website, we have some external links to COVID-19 uh, uh, amendments to advanced directives. And one of those links uh, provides in, in great detail the different approaches and methodologies of delivering oxygen, for example, and what that entails. And then in that amendment, the, uh, the person can select what how far they want to go. Some people would still just rely on the very simple format that uh, most people have in their advanced directives is that I don't want to have my life uh, prolonged uh, under um, circumstances where I'm no longer able to make decisions. But when does your advanced directive go into effect? What uh, decisions have you already made? And are there some uh, amendments that you would like to make under COVID 19 circumstances. The other big document is the uh, provider orders for life-sustaining treatment form, and that is not an advanced directive. and the provider or emergency medical services may not even look for your uh, advanced directive, uh, but rely completely on the pulsed form. and the pulsed form, um, it can be rather dramatic because it's an uh, uh, immediately actionable order of your physician or advanced practice registered nurse. And um, what does that say? Many people in long-term care facilities have been urged to execute POLST. Do they, do they really want it to be so dramatic that they refuse uh, resuscitation or refuse tube feeding? But what if, um, what if uh, some of these interventions are are available that may save your life? What are your thoughts? And again, some people would say, "No, just leave it the way it is. I don't want anything uh, extraordinary to be done." Uh, Others may say, "Well, you know, I'd I'd like to talk about that. That that's the most important thing. Is that." The individual who is faced with these uh, decisions uh, should talk to the health care provider, to the family members, to uh, caregivers, and discuss the, uh, the the medicine, the science, what, their own feelings. And uh, then they can either keep their old advanced directives or uh, think about doing an amendment or execute a brand new advanced directive, and or pulsed form. The pulsed form, even if a, if a person doesn't have a pulsed form, most people don't know that the legally authorized representative of, uh, of an incapacitated person, uh, even a person who has an advanced directive, the legally um, authorized representative who could be the guardian, the agent under a power of attorney, or a legal surrogate, can initiate uh, and execute a pulse, can change the patient's pulse, uh, or can modify that pulse. So we're not trying to frighten anybody, but we just want to give more information if they haven't uh, thought about uh, the balance that we have with the advance directive and the pulse and how they overlap What do you have in your medical file, if anything? And if you don't have anything in the medical file, well, maybe maybe you should think about that because this uh, uh, pandemic has uh, certainly showed us that anyone can die at any time and perhaps in isolation. It may be too late by the time you're in isolation to do much about it, except having people around you either trying to save your life or trying to figure out what what your wishes really were.
6: It sounds like the pandemic has just really showed that these things that, that we should have in place are really important as this pandemic goes on and these things can change really quickly.
7: Yes, and advanced directives have two key parts to them. One uh, is the part that has the individual instructions for health care that I've been mainly talking about now. But the other one, um, and just as important, is... The ability to designate an agent to carry out your decisions and uh, this would be a, a prime person to let them know what your feelings are what matters to me most in life and uh, on our website there's a uh, we have a handbook it's called uh, deciding what matters and what to do so the handbook is on the website and it's especially important for this Type of a discussion is uh, our Chapter 2, Planning for Medical Treatment, Healthcare Decisions, and Decisions at the End of Life. So I believe that it's most important that people have the knowledge and then they can make better decisions. And whichever, uh, whichever philosophy, whatever philosophy they may have about end of life, they can hopefully rest assured that their wishes will be followed.
6: UHELP has been hearing more uh, reports of abuse and neglect and financial expectation. Can you talk about that if you think it's related to the COVID-19 pandemic?
7: What we've been mainly getting calls about is when people who have either diminished capacity or are under undue influence um, change their disposition plans for their estates, or they may... um, be more susceptible to having people just sign documents that they don't even know uh, what they're signing. So, one, uh, some of our colleagues in the in the medical field are just really um, suspicious when they see lawyers and uh, and family members come to um, <laughs> to the bedside. That's not happening right now, but it, it's uh, an indication that. People who are uh, subject to uh, diminished capacity, and who may be under undue influence from from family members or, or even strangers, uh, it's even more important for for somebody to keep an eye on them to to make sure that uh, these things aren't happening. We've seen families where one uh, attorney and a notary go into a facility and make documents, to undo what another child has recently done. And who knows what the what the patient or the resident really wanted in those situations. Very often things go bad for older persons. And, it, and uh, many people are disappointed at the end of life. Um, and you can see that in the newspapers and famous cases where it's not going the way they had hoped it would go at the end of life. And is it is it because they lack the ability to uh, stand up and to fight uh, the uh, abuse against them, or, or is it that they've um, that their minds have changed and they really can't make uh, rational decisions?
0: That was James Peach director of the University of Hawaii Elder Law Program. To find out more about the resources and the COVID-19 concerns, visit our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. to transportation reporter Marcel Andre has a story today about rail where do the leading mayoral candidates stand on the issue he joins us this morning for our reality check good morning Marcel
5: morning Catherine good to be here
0: yeah so you know we've seen some of these candidates in action because they've held office before and some have worked very closely with the rail project
5: yeah you know a few of these uh, have played real um, key and pivotal roles uh, on the rail project throughout its its history in the last 10 years or so. I mean, certainly you can point to Luffy Henneman, uh, the former mayor who's trying to get that job back, and the role that he played in getting the project off the ground. Uh, you know, and, and some would say to his credit, um, you know, this is this is something that uh, his predecessors, a lot of them, were trying to do. You know, people point to Frank Fosse and the like, uh, and they, they weren't able to do Uh But, yeah, Moofy certainly played a a pivotal role back in the day. You also have um, the current sitting city councilwoman, Kim Pine, um, who is a pretty avid rail supporter, representing the Leeward Coast and touting uh, benefits of, you know, and trying to get uh, past the H-1 traffic and how that might impact the commute. And then you've got the former congresswoman, uh, Colleen Hanabusa, who was – the Hart board chair for a little over... Well, she was on the board for a little over a year and a half. And uh, I want to say about half that time was chair of the board. And uh, she was there at a very pivotal time when the the costs started to really get out of control in 2016. And she played a very um, key role in um, kind of facilitating the exit of the then executive director, Dan Krabowskis.
0: Yeah, and those three candidates, I mean... They know the history of the project. Uh, you know, they're living it, right? Or they, they, they've lived it. They know it pretty well.
5: Yeah, they've, they've got a, um, a real intimate understanding with this. Uh, you know, I, I think about Kim Pine, who's, who's watched this, and she's basically shared that she and other members of the, the city council were um, uh, played a role in, in helping to push along what is now a federal criminal investigation taking some of the, um, uh, the, the information and the details they got out of a city audit back in 2016 and saying this is either, you know, the, the mismanagement that was flagged was, was either horribly incompetent or something worse, you know, and she'll, she'll use the C word, the corruption, right? Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, uh, Colleen Hanabusa during her time uh, on, on the, the board and when she was chairing it, I remember those, those meetings you know they would they would double in time because uh, you know people point out, uh, Colleen really likes to get into the weeds and into the details of things, and she would just spend a lot of time uh, going going through the details of what was happening with the
0: project. Yeah, and because uh, these candidates are familiar with it, you know, critics could say, well, you know, did you do enough to curb the costs? You know, what did you do when you were in office?
5: Yeah, and that's kind of they've they've all kind of distanced themselves. You know, Murphy saying, hey. Uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, the bulk of this happened. Um, the cost increases happened well after I had left office. Um, of course, uh, some of the initial cost increases are attributed to the contracts that went out when he was still in office. Um, you know, Colleen would would say, as as Heart Chair, that the Heart Board really didn't have a lot of power um, uh, back when when she was on the board, and they did manage to get. Uh, some reforms through by uh, charter amendment that gave uh, the board a little more scrutiny over change orders uh, that they would have to see those and approve them rather than just hiring and firing the, um, the the executive director. And, um, you know, again, Kim, Kim would point to um, some of the steps they've taken to try and get some, some federal scrutiny. And she's called for more federal, um, oversight on site
2: at heart offices uh, for the project
0: and you've got the uh two of the other candidates uh, rick blangerity and uh, keith Amamiya. i know they it's a steeper curve for those two
5: yeah so it, you know rick has, has generally said that he would you know he'd like to see it get to Alamoana, moana uh, but he points out that we're living in a different reality uh, after the covid 19 pandemic and how that has affected rails finances and um like the other most of the other candidates uh the the front runners i should say um he said they'll you know they'll look at maybe pausing or stalling the project if uh you know it runs short of money again uh but there's some big unknowns with that you'll have to see what the fta has to say uh you know whether they would be amenable to some sort of a pause until the, the state tax revenues can back online
0: okay and I know you've got uh, the uh, heart meeting on Thursday so we'll be looking to see what kind of new numbers uh, they come up with
5: yeah they'll they'll be uh, there certainly be an update uh, from the chief financial officer um, and it's it is looking like it's it's uh, coming significantly short of what was projected to come in uh, by you know over a hundred million dollars
0: all right well we'll have to to check back and and see how that uh, plays out but thanks so much Marcel that was reporter Marcel Henry with today's Reality Check. Oh, you can read his story online at sybilbeat.org.
6: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Office of Elections, reminding voters that there are no polling places on Election Day. Hawaii votes by mail. Registered voters should look for their ballot packets arriving in late July. elections.hawaii.gov
5: I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, when Maria Kanakova decided to become a professional poker player, she didn't know how many cards are in a deck.
1: Yes, I thought there were 54.
5: This is a true story. We find out how Kanakova not only learned to win, but what poker taught her about skill, luck, and decision-making.
1: Life is a game of incomplete information.
5: How to make your own luck. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio.
1: This evening at
6: seven, following Counterspin.
0: After our segment on the pressing needs of the Waianae Coast, we got this on our talkback line.
3: My name is Deborah Rosenthal,
7: and I'm calling from Kailua.
0: I like your show, but I was disappointed in today's
7: show where people were talking about the Waianae Coast like it was
0: the other end of the world and uh, that the people who lived there were oh so different from the people who live on the rest of uh, Oahu. Um, If you listen to your own self interviewing
7: each other about what it's like in Waianae and imagine that you live there and that you listen to HPR, it it sounds like you really um, um, were showing disrespect as if they were from another planet.
0: Uh, I was sorry to hear that, Uh, but the substance of the story was good. Thank you. And Mike from Maui had more to say about Hawaii's quarantine.
3: Why are they going to allow a three-day or 72-hour test before people from anywhere outside of the islands can arrive here? Because it's very easy, I think, to pick up COVID-19 when you change planes two or three times, not knowing that you may have picked it up and spreading it on an airplane. And then they get here and you have many people spreading COVID-19. I think that they need to give a test before the last flight to the islands, and they should spend more money to have a more accurate test that can get the results in 10 minutes. If you are negative, great. You can come without quarantine. But if you are positive, sorry, you can't come. Thank you very much for taking my comment. Bye-bye for now.
0: And thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our Talkback line 792-8217. Earlier in the show, we told you about the Capitol Building of the Republic of Palau. Its classic design with its columns and 40-foot dome evokes the look of the U.S. Capitol Building more than anything uh, that one might find in Western Micronesia. The price tag came out to $40 million. The manager of the Palau Capital Improvements Projects Office described the building's effect. You're driving on this island in a sea of forest greens, and then turn a corner and find this huge white dome sticking up, he said. Still, many visitors find the image disconcerting, but as its architect said, they wanted something that would give their nation instant recognition as a new nation in the world, and that's what they got. This morning, we asked you to name the local architect. You can thank Joe Farrell of Architects Hawaii for the design. And uh, congratulations to Ray from Kula, Maui. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Waypoints for the 50th state. That's an outline of what's possible as we move to unpause our economy and try to structure a more resilient future. We talked to Blue Planet's Jeff McColina about the just release plan. This has been in the works
2: for a few months since the you know the beginning of the, the pandemic and the the subsequent you know crisis here in Hawaii. You know we've been wanting to put forth an agenda that marries the the situation we're, we're in with a, an eye toward the long term for climate change, because there's so many parallels between the issue of you know, responding to a pandemic, our climate crisis, as well as justice issues and recovering our economy. So we want to explore those intersections and see how we could put forth a document and start the conversation about Hawaii's recovery.
0: So some of these points are quick turns and some are kind of larger overhauls.
2: That's right. Some some of them are, are programs that could be, you know, fairly full implement. Some of them are larger policy pieces which we think are necessary to help kind of shift our economy to one that really takes advantage of our, our local abundance and sets on course for a more resilient economy.
0: We've been hearing a lot about how we need to diversify because tourism has tanked and everybody's hurting. We've heard lots about green energy and the opportunity to really push that.
2: Right now, clean energy is really one of the bright spots in our economy. In the recent proposals for some of the larger renewable energy projects that have recently been approved, it's one of the largest investments of capital into the state, uh, possibly looking across the all of the sectors i mean it's we're talking 3 to 4 billion dollars of investment uh, in clean energy and that also means new jobs uh, and it means us weaning off of oil, which is money that just leaves the state.
0: We have a situation now on the Big Island, you know, where you've got that Onua plant in the throes of real dilemma because they've got the plant built, but they don't have the go ahead with the PUC.
2: That whole situation is just, it, it's unfortunate. But it also shows how quickly the landscape is shifting. I mean, it used to be, you know, clean energy was expensive and not reliable around the clock. But today it's the cheapest source of energy and that's primarily solar plus storage, which is you know grown tremendously on Oahu, but also on Hawaii Island. That makes some of these you know older facilities or proposals that were just a few years old. Uh, look outdated already
0: and we've seen a real shift in this whole working from home working remotely and so be curious to see what that means going forward you know what businesses opt to pull back on the physical footprint but then also you know raises questions about okay you know how does this work could we do a four-day work week
2: exactly one of our waypoints is looking at encouraging you know telecommuting staggered work hours now's the time people have experienced it we've adapted so let's put that in place long term we've already seen some pretty sh- striking examples of you know reductions in fossil fuel use if you look at april's uh, gasoline use statewide it's down nearly 50 percent from average april's in the past five years um, so th- that's substantial savings uh, and that's money in people's pockets it's less greenhouse gas pollution Um, So let's find ways that we can take the best of the experience we're having right now, uh, make those changes durable.
0: I know that uh, a lot of these car companies are saying, yeah, the factories are shut down so they can't make, you know, any more cars. We've watched the price of fuel actually drop, which is kind of nice here in Hawaii because we always, you know, our prices are always so elevated. But it's just been interesting just to see the shift.
2: It is. Uh, and, and something that's fascinating is the, we've seen a drop, obviously, in car sales overall. For the last five months, gasoline car sales uh, have dropped, the registration of vehicles powered by gasoline. But every month of the past five months, we've seen an increase in electric vehicle registrations, uh, some of the largest jumps we've ever seen in the state. So people are switching to electric vehicles which is really good for our clean energy future.
0: And we've seen some of the incentives go away just because, you know, there are issues at the airport where the, the state needs to pencil out what works in the parking garages. But it is interesting to see that maybe more drivers are giving EVs a second look.
2: It's disappointing that we're taking a step backward on incentives at a time where we need to be, you know, looking at new ways to encourage people to get into clean mobility. So we've also proposed in our waypoints some ways to do that. And again, refocusing really focusing on you know, taxing the source of our problem.
0: What else do we need to look at?
2: We've outlined, you know, 50 waypoints for the 50th, 50th state, and really looking across the board, we've them into seven different categories, looking at you know, building career ladders, repowering our mobility, rebuilding Hawaii, and try to, again, to focus on the intersection between, you know, growing our economy and quality jobs and reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, really, the, the best way to recover is to focus on what we have in abundance, which is talent and clean energy. We have not one drop of you know, fossil fuel in Hawaii, so we can really benefit by playing to our strengths. And that's what we hope to focus on you know, through, these, through these waypoints. Uh, really actions to help guide us to more secure, healthy, just, and sustainable energy future.
0: It's been interesting because this pandemic has caused us to pause in so many different ways. The experimental thing with closing Kalakaua in Waikiki, it is nice to see families and children out there enjoying Kalakaua with no cars.
2: We had proposed, you know, closing select streets, in particular Kalakaua, because that one is just a perfect example of it should be built for for people, not for cars. That's the heart of our, you know, visitor infrastructure. And so it should be unimpeded access to the ocean, and just a great thoroughfare for, for bikers and other, you know, fossil-free uh, ways of transportation. And, and places around the world are looking at the same thing. You know, Seattle has designated some 22 miles of roads they are converting permanently into car-free areas. Uh, similarly, in Milan and London and other places, finding that, you know, to provide for outdoor social distancing and exercise, you know, we don't need all of these, all of this public land dedicated to automobiles.
0: What do you hope to do with this report?
2: We present this with humility. We understand that this is just a conversation starter, and so we hope to have those conversations, both with elected officials, decision leaders, uh, with anyone who's willing to listen. We have this opportunity to really reimagine what Hawaii could be. We proposed 50 initiatives. We'd love to join the conversation and talk about others, but this pause has really given us this unparalleled opportunity to rethink what our future could look
0: like. And really, probably we've bent the ears of a lot of power brokers in this town that maybe wouldn't have, you know, given this a, a first glance. We hope. And by
2: power, you know, we think uh, electricity and, and vehicles and the like. It's hard. The, the pull of the status quo will be very strong. People want to get back to some some sense of normal, as do we. But now's our chance to really transfigure how we do business in Hawaii. Uh, when we look at tourism, uh, you know, we'd love to bring back visitors when the time is right, but let's do it in a way that really captures the essence of clean energy islands, uh, where people come here and experience an electric vehicle. You know, they stay in a hotel room that's powered by clean energy, and and they see how you know the islands are climate solutions. You know, demonstrating to the world what that looks like. We think that's something that. Uh, Hawaii is uniquely positioned to do.
0: You think that, it, given that we've gone through this pandemic, that'll accelerate certain pieces of the climate change picture?
2: We, we think certainly. I mean, it's unfortunate that just because we're having this pandemic, these other issues don't disappear. I mean, there's still we're still seeing an uptick of carbon dioxide as measured on top of Mauna Loa, but we're seeing a taste of what a different future could look like. You know, with airplanes parked and with cars parked and people you know, taking this pause. So rarely do we have such a gift, as as horrific as it is, to really think differently about, you know, how we could live on this earth. There's a lot, of, a lot of conversations happening, and understandably, decision makers have to balance near-term and longer-term. Um, but we hope to really, you know, show those connections and, and show how we can set ourselves up. Um, going back to business as usual just isn't an option. Uh, we, we can build a more resilient future.
0: That was Jeff Mikulina with Blue Panette Foundation talking about its newly released report, 50 Waypoints for the 50th State. Thanks for joining us uh, for this past hour. Tomorrow, we turn our attention to Hanama Bay. It's a call-in show on what lies ahead for the Marine Preserve. Who imagined it would be closed to the public for months on end? The fish are probably wondering, where'd all those humans go? What do you think about raising the entrance fees and limiting the crowds? Wouldn't it be nice if residents got a chance to enjoy the bay without all the hordes of tourists? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Katherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.